Good morning, and uh, thank you, Lizzie, for the testimony, and, and uh, to the whole band for your leadership this morning. Um, Lizzie, as usual, right on par, Y'all, you'll see in just a minute. Uh, last week, we kicked back off in our study of Luke, which I was super excited to do. We picked up in chapter 8, where Luke begins to reveal the power that Jesus holds. I don't know about you guys, but that, that story, that idea of uh, making sure you're in the same boat that Jesus is in has come up several times during my week. It's been, been really powerful. Um, at the end of that section, the disciples ask this question. After they have this experience, they ask the question, who is this man? And Luke re- uses the next few sections to help us to continue to answer that question. The story from last week shows that Jesus has the authority over nature as he calms this raging storm with only his words. We considered as a group the implications of living with that kind of a savior with that much power. There's nothing that we can face in life that could cause so much fear when we know that Jesus is in our boat, if you will. So God's given us this vision of developing meaningful relationships with the families in our community and becoming a multicultural church. God's called us to this place, to this people, and he'll provide all that we need to complete the task that he set before us. Today in our passage, Luke will show yet another area in which Jesus holds absolute power. We looked at this last week, but I want us to be reminded of where Jesus and the disciples came from and where they're headed. I've got the map, Anna, if you'll click that back up again. We looked at this last week. Jesus and the disciples are in a boat, and they're headed to a new area. This is a Gentile area that's important to know. We'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more in a little bit. Uh, but Luke includes this without a doubt because it's him setting up the ministry that God's going to have the people do specifically in the Gentile world. That's why this is Luke has placed this story where it is. So this in the passage from last week, remember Jesus and the disciples set sail. Jesus falls asleep. A storm comes upon them, and the disciples thought that they were going to literally die, and so they called upon Jesus to save them. And then after all of that, after they Jesus wakes up and is like, Where is your faith? See, chill out. Then, and <laughs> I think I sent you guys that video. Yeah, there was the, the sea had no chill. Loved it. Uh, so after all this, the disciples asked the question, who is this guy? We're going to pick up today in Luke chapter 8. and We'll read verses 26 through 39 and, and let Luke continue to answer that question for us. So Luke chapter 8, verse 26 through 39. It says, then they sailed to a region called the, I'm going to try to say this right, Gerasenes. There we go which is opposite of Galilee. When they got out on land, a demon-possessed man from town met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes and did not stay in a house but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell before him, and said in a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, And though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon into the deserted places. What is your name? Jesus asked him. Legion, he said, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside, and the demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. And when the men who tended them saw what had happened, they ran off and reported it to the town in the countryside. Then the people went outside to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man and demons had departed from, 
sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Meanwhile, the eyewitness reported, eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered. Then all the people of the Gerasene region asked him to leave them because they were gripped with, by great fear. So getting into the boat, he returned. The man from whom the demons had departed begged him earnestly to be with him, but Jesus sent him away and said, Go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. And he went off proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him. So there's a lot to unpack in this story, right? Luke includes this story to teach us something very important. He wants us to understand that Jesus in this situation and in all is completely in control and has the power to overcome the supernatural in this world. So this is point number one for today is that Jesus holds power and authority over all things. There are attempts specifically in recent history to make a comparison to or to imply that what scripture calls demons were really just mental or physical disorders. And I want us to clearly understand that that is not the case in this story. We can see plainly that Jesus conversed with this group of demons. Uh, One of my commentaries said, a demon-possessed man is literally a certain man having demons. Luke used the plural demons in light of the later reference to their number. So if you look at the actual Greek, it says the word demons. That's not to be confused with something else. And I want to make that very clear. I want us to to uh, look again at this interaction between Jesus and his demons because Luke, there's no confusion for him at this point. There's not one demon, but there's a lot of them. So look in verse 28 and 30, it says, when Jesus, when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him and said in a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon into deserted places. And what is your name? Jesus asked him. Legion, he said, because many demons had entered him. So there's several things I want us to see in this chunk of passage. Luke's last depiction of the disciples is them asking, who is this man? And as soon as they step onto the shore... This demon-possessed man comes to Jesus and instantly recognizes him. Second thing is, Jesus talks to the demons and they respond by obeying what Jesus tells them to do. Okay, These demons are obviously afraid of Jesus. And even though the demons have the power to break the chains and the shackles, they are powerless against Jesus. Their fear drives them to action, to obey him. And then the third thing is that this is not one demon, but a legion. And that word is the same word that's used to describe a Roman legion, which was typically 6,000 men. We're talking about a lot of demons in this one man. So a lot's happening in this sort section with Jesus. And one thing is obvious, that they are afraid because they know the power of what they call the Son of the Most High. And I don't know if you'll remember this or not, but Jesus has already been called in Scripture the Son of the Most High. Do you remember who called him that? It's a little quiz time. If you don't, it's okay. We looked at this a year ago, so if you've forgotten, I'll give you a pass on it. But this is in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, when Gabriel comes to Mary to tell her that she is pregnant with, look at verse 32, he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. 
and he will, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So this is Gabriel, the angel, telling Mary who her son will be. All that's happening in this moment is so much bigger than anyone besides Jesus and probably these demons realize. A supernatural interaction is happening here, and Jesus firmly holds the upper hand. Some people look at this and they say, well, Jesus tricked the demons and sent them into the pigs. That's, that's not what's happening here. It's obvious by the, the, the way the demon approached Jesus. It says it bowed down before him, called him by name, knew who he was. Jesus was in full control of this moment. And this is why the demon responds to his presence in this way. It says, when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him and said in a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. They're afraid, these demons are, because they know what awaits them in the future. Their request to be sent into the pigs is their attempt at avoiding the misery for just a bit longer. Look at verse 31 at what this torture will be like. It says, and they begged him not to banish them into the abyss. And there's many references to the word abyss that are found in Scripture. I included those in the outline if you'd like to go look at those later. But in today's language, we would call that hell. That's what they're afraid of. Even the demons don't want to go there. And we see this by their desire to enter these pigs. Look at verse 32 and 33. It says, a large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. And the demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. There's no doubt that this event drew some attention, right? I mean, think about the way you probably feel right now in this moment. I've said the word demons a whole lot in church. And I don't know about you, but that makes even me uncomfortable. I don't like saying it, right? But there's a, there's a group of people that are standing there watching this whole thing happen. It's the guys that own the pigs, right? The ones that are in charge of taking care of them. And Luke tells us that at the sight of the pigs running off into the water, those that were there from that local town went home and told everybody what had happened. And this brings us to our second point for today, is that Jesus' action in the world always elicit a response. This is absolutely true in what we're reading about today. Look with me again at verses 34 and 35. It says, When the men who tended them saw what happened, they ran off and reported it to the town in the countryside. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man the demons had departed from, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. You know, last week I asked you to think about a time when you were afraid. In the lives of the disciples and the locals in this area, Fear was often a precursor to understanding Jesus' authority. The same may be true in your life. When we face these kinds of moments in our lives, we can respond in a couple of ways. And we've talked about this before. When we see Jesus' activity, we can either run to Jesus or we can run away from him. Last week, the disciples, when they faced this fear, how did they respond? Who did they go to? They went to Jesus, right? They went to Jesus because they, they know this man. They have seen some of the things that he can do. The other way we can respond is to run away from them. In our passage today, these town people ran away. Do you know why they ran away? Because they had no previous faith to lean into. The disciples knew Jesus. They knew the things that he was capable of. They sail across 
the, the Sea of Galilee and they land in this place where people don't know. Maybe they've heard his name, but they certainly don't have the experiences that the disciples happen, have. And they see this thing happen. They hear testimony of what, about what just happened and they are afraid. This was most likely their first experience of Jesus or maybe even God. This was a Gentile area, not a Jewish community. When God, God starts making himself known in people's lives, it often scares them. In our story today, this is pretty extreme, right? This is not like your everyday average run-of-the-mill experience with the Lord. We can all agree to that, right? Yes, we can agree. Okay, thank you. But even when we go through our experiences with God, sometimes it causes fear for us. I have a friend who's a believer, but for many years he has ignored God. And you, if you asked him, do you have a relationship with God, he would tell you yes, and it's true that he does. But he also would be very plain that he's made no attempts to pursue that relationship or to maintain it in any way. He's recently gone through an experience that has threatened everything that he holds dear in his life. In our story today, the townspeople are going through a similar kind of experience. They saw God do something incredible. God controlled something that they were unable to control. It says that they put chains and shackles on this man to try to restrain him. He would simply break them. That's pretty powerful. And here Jesus walks up, gets out of this boat, this unknown man, and just tells the demons to go away, and they do. Look at how this commentator frames this experience. I love this. I read it this like, two months ago, but when I went back to it yesterday, I was like, oh man, this is so good. He said, for Luke, however, it is clear that just hearing God's word is not enough. So seeing God at work is also not enough. Even a greater miracle cannot compel faith. Apart from a noble and good heart, God's presence produces only fear. For the believer, such fear turns to holy awe. But to the unbelieving, it is only a fearsome dread from which they seek to rid themselves. Man, isn't that good? My friend, while he's a believer, and we talk, he and I talked about this yesterday. I sent him this quote and we had a conversation. I said, man, I think this is where you are right now in your life. Not saying that you are not saved, but I think you've been separated from God so long that the devil's convinced you that it's too hard to come back, that God could not forgive you. And he responded with, yeah, I think you're dead on with that. Not because he's lost his salvation, but because the separation has made space for the devil to slide in and convince him that God doesn't love him anymore. I also thought about this in light of David's comment that I shared with you a couple of weeks ago about our authenticity and how that can create fear in people. And all of these things, I, I've been thinking about this passage all week in both of those circumstances, and it begs the question, how do we help people make a transition from fearsome dread into holy awe? Because I've been in the fearsome dread stage of my life before. I don't want to be there, and they don't want to be there either. That's why the townspeople told Jesus to go away. They, they didn't know how to get rid of that, but they thought at least if they sent that man away, that it would remove the uncomfortableness of it. And so how do we help the people in our lives? How do I help my friend who's living in that moment of fearsome dread make a transition from that to holy awe where they look at it and they go, wow, that was incredible. I've thought about this a lot. Every situation is going to be unique, but I think generally we begin that process by loving them, 
We love them unconditionally, not approving of their sin, but despite of it, just like God loves us, we love them. And by being honest with them about our own sin, to prove God's love and acceptance of all. That authenticity that is scary gives us the tools to be able to say, look, you and I are not that different. I can say to my friend, our sins may be different, but they are still sin and they both still separate us from God. The difference is in how we're responding to it. And by me loving him in his situation, in his sin, in his wrongfulness, I am communicating the same love that God gives to me in my sin, in my wrongfulness. You know, we don't get the backstory of this formerly demon-possessed man in our story or how he got into that position. But what we do know is that Jesus loved him right where he was. And not only did he love him, he rescued him. I think we need to see that today. The chances of us running into a demon-possessed man or woman in in this community is slim to none, okay? But what we are going to run into is people who have a fearsome dread. And maybe it's because of their history. We don't know. But as the commentator mentioned, not everybody is going to respond the way we expect. That's what Lizzie was talking about this morning in her testimony. Look at the villagers' response again, verse 36 and 37. It says, Meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered. Then all the people of the Gerasene region, excuse me, Gerasene, asked him to leave because they were gripped by great fear. So getting into the boat, Jesus returned. As we think about loving others, as we think about being a multicultural body and being authentic, we must realize that not everybody is going to respond the way that we hope. Know that their response is not a reflection of anything that you can do or have done, but rather it is their response to God. These people are not responding to Jesus by sending him off because of anything the disciples did, right? They're sending them off because they have just seen the glory of God and it scared them. These people didn't reject the disciples, they rejected Jesus and God. This, this experience of rejection is unique to our God. He does not force himself upon us. He gives us the option to reject him because he wants us to be his children. And as his children to love him, not to be his slaves who do it because of fear. Also, some people are going to respond to us in the way that we do hope. They are going to respond in a positive way. And this is certainly the case in today's story with this formerly demon-possessed man. The the whole town rejects Jesus, but look at how he responds in verse 38. It says, The man from whom the demons had departed begged him earnestly to be with him, but he sent him away and said, we'll pick up in verse 39 in just a minute, but this brings us to our third point, is that Jesus sends us to be disciple where he wants us. You know, I can can empathize with this formerly demon-possessed man. How could you not want to stay with Jesus? He just saved you from something horrific. If I was that man, I would want to stay by Jesus too. If for nothing else, then then knowing that if I'm by his side, I will be safe and comfortable and in my right mind, right? If someone did something like that for me, I want to be their best friend forever, just in case something like that were to happen again. However, there's something more important happening here than what we want, than what this man wants. 
It was what Jesus wants for him and what Jesus wants for us and the people around us. Look at verse 39. Jesus sent him away. It's what we just read in 38. In 39 it says, go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. And he went off proclaiming throughout that town how much Jesus had done for him. Church, this has nothing to do with what with Jesus not wanting this guy to join him, right? It's not that there wasn't enough seats in the boat. It wasn't that this guy smelled weird and so Jesus didn't want that in the boat with him. That's not what this is about. This had everything to do with the people that had just rejected Jesus. You see, this man just had an experience with God and there's no fear in him. He is in the moment of holy awe. God has just delivered him from something. We don't know how long, but obviously it was bad. As I mentioned a minute ago, the people from town had no previous experiences on which to base what Jesus had done. This is very new and very weird from their perspective. But from the perspective of the man who's standing in the moment of holy awe, this is incredible. And so Jesus tells this man, go back to your village And tell them all the things that I've done for you. Church, guiding people through their initial experiences with God is why God has called us to this place and to this people. Some we will encounter will have had some church exposure. Some will not. I'd be willing to bet that many that we're going to meet and get to know will have some church hurt or church trauma in their past. I think that because I know that most of us in this room have experienced that, and God's going to leverage those experiences to help others move past their own. As we develop relationships with the men and women in this neighborhood, we will find acceptance as often as rejection, but it isn't about us. Just like in our story, God's going to work in this community, and we will join him. Hopefully, it's not as extreme as what happened in the story to write. Amen? Okay. But in that process, God will use our experiences and faith to help others understand his actions. God sent this man back to the village so that someone who knew God's power and love was there as God continued to work in that community. And this man did exactly what Jesus asked him to do. This formerly possessed man returns to his town and he proclaimed what Jesus had done for him. You guys remember years ago, Glenn preaching and telling us that our stories are all that we own. Y'all remember that? God has given us the experiences and the stories so that we can share them with other people. Our experiences with God will help others to understand God's activity in their life. We know the kinds of things that God has done by experience for us. And as people begin to have similar experiences, but they have no frame of reference for what that might mean or what God's trying to accomplish, we can come alongside them and help them to understand. We have gone through hard things. We've come out the other side knowing God in a deeper and a better way. We've learned to trust Him. We've learned to know if we are in the right boat We know who has the power over nature and cosmic forces. And it's our call to guide people and to love them through their difficulties so that they can build their own faith and have their own experience. In my friend's life that I mentioned a while ago, I can't rescue him from his trouble, but I can walk with him through it. I can be there continually encouraging him to seek God's direction. I can pray for him. I can simply listen as he processes out loud what is happening in his life. 
Church, we are not the saviors in our stories. And we will not be the saviors in other people's stories. We are, the, we are Jesus' disciples who can shed light on God's activity and what it might mean for them. God wants the people in our neighborhood, in our communities, to know that he has all authority and power over the natural and the supernatural. And they will respond as God reveals himself to this community through his work. And we can join God as he works and by walking with them through those experiences as being disciple makers. But we have to pay attention to God's activity and his people. We got to know these people. I'll tell you, I've been really encouraged by the conversations that have been happening in life groups as God has begun to speak to each life group, to each individual member about the things that he needs them to do or wants them to do in this community. I want to ask you to continue to pursue God and let's join him and one another in loving this community. As Bethany talked about several weeks ago, the, the fields are ripe for harvest and we need to pray that God would send people to help us harvest. Church, we are in a unique position because of our faith and the history that we have with one another and the history that we have with God to help people to understand God's activity in their life. God has placed us here for that reason. And so as you're thinking about what it means to be a multicultural church, as you're thinking about what it means to do life in this community, your concern should not be with what experiences you have, what knowledge you have. Your concern should be where is God working and how is he calling me to assist him in what he is doing? You know, in our story, Jesus is there. He's doing all the work, but his disciples are there with him. And it's not going to be very much longer before the church begins to be persecuted after the Holy Spirit's come and people are dispersed. And I guarantee you that this town was ripe for the harvest by the time the apostles got there. God has called us to something incredible. The only way we're ever going to accomplish what he has called us to do is if we're relying on him and his power. If we're paying attention to the things that God is doing. If we're sharing what God's given us with the people around us. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you'd help us to have our eyes wide open, our hearts, our spirits open to the things that you're doing around us. Father, I ask that you would give each of us an opportunity to meet someone in this neighborhood, to develop a meaningful relationship with the people that live here. Father, it's going to require you doing all the work and us simply listening and obeying to the things that you're telling us to do. So Father, I ask that you continue to speak to every member of our church, that you would share with them your desire for them to work in this community. God, that you would help them to see the details of that so that we can begin the work. Father, our desire is to, to know you. And as we are walking in obedience to the things that you've called us to do, Lord, we are going to know you in bigger and better ways than we already do. So Father, I pray for our hearts. I pray that you'd give us courage, that you would give us the strength to pursue you and to obey you as we walk this, this life with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.